Alex, can you hear me? Sure can. Can you hear me near you? Welcome back to Royals Weekly. I am your host, Marcus Mead, and joining me as always, a man with all the confidence of someone with much more hair than him, my brother Mike. Yeah, I'm, I'm dominating in the power alley department right here. Okay, I got a lot of gap power, <laughs> you know? Yeah, so uh, gap to gap. With you, it's gap <laughs> to gap to, what do we call this sweet spot? Right behind the batter's eye yeah, over here. <laughs> <laughs> you can get one all the way out to beyond the batter's eye back here. That's right. Uh, that's, that's, that's where you're doing. It's, it's a crown just right there on top. Mm-hmm. Uh, but hey, good for you having that kind of confidence. Baldness is not a, uh, it should not be a, something to look down upon in our society. So there are hundreds of us. Hundreds! <laughs> <laughs> On this week's episode, we'll review another sub 500 week. That was like a very charitable way to describe it. It feels worse than that somehow. I don't know. Uh, we'll, we'll review another sub 500 week from the Royals. We'll discuss how the Royals should approach the 2023 draft with Royals Farm Reports' Alex Duval, our good friend, is going to join us. And then we'll preview this week's games. But first, Royals Weekly is brought to you by Nap Family Wealth. Mike, can you think of anything more important than securing your financial future? Building a monument to the Canadian reggae rapper Snow? No. What? You lack vision, my friend. He's coming back, and when you want back on that Snow bandwagon, I'm not letting you on. <laughs> Inform. Oh, no, I don't want any copyrights. Um, I'm sure that's all he makes his money on these days. Uh But also, no, securing your financial future is one of the most important steps someone can take for themselves and their family, and Knapp Family Wealth is ready to help you pursue it. This isn't some big, faceless corporation we're talking about here. Knapp Family Wealth is run by J.C. Knapp. He's a huge baseball fan, and he's been helping people plan for their financial futures for 20 years. He can help with retirement planning so you don't have to work until you're dead, education planning so your kid learns to read good, investment management so you get all that money out from under your mattress and get it working for you. Don't spend another day thinking you've got it all figured out because trust me, you don't. Check out Nap Family Wealth at napfamilywealth.com. That's K-N-A-P-P familywealth.com. Securities and advisory services offered through LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor, member FINRA slash SIPC. Let's see. We'll get to roster news now. Oh, yes, yes. Roster news is how we start the review. Uh, it's been quite a few things happening up and down as Royals sort of really scramble for pitching is what they're really doing. Uh, they brought Jackson Coar up and that was a sort of interesting move because he was not pitching well in AAA. Mike, how do you feel about his one appearance and how he did in that outing? Well, first I thought he might mess his drawers in that first inning. My God, (laughs) he looked more wound up than what you see a normal adult person who's pitched in major league baseball before. (laughs) Um, but after that, he really did settle in and he looked like what you kind of hope Jackson Coar could be still a lot of questions to answer about, especially his fastball, but his changed up really looked good in those other innings. Um, yeah. So can he throw the strikes that he needs to throw? Is he going to be confident enough in, in a pitch like his fastball, which has not been very good to throw it when he needs to? I, I don't know. There's still a lot of questions to answer with Jackson Coar, but I would say overall it was a, a good outing and he'll be back up because he has to be mathematically he has to come back up yeah in some ways it was same old same old with him the the well i, mean, I don't know how to, you put it like the looking like he's gonna mess his drawers i don't know exactly how i would put it but uh he, he looked very shaky in that first inning what he walk two guys in that first inning to load the bases yeah. or something mm-hmm. like that yep. maybe uh and so walk two guys yeah, in to some load ways the base. it was same 
same old, same old from Jackson Kowar. Looked like he just had never been on a baseball field there for a second. But then he comes out in the second and he shoves. And that's like classic Kowar, right? Like he'll have a stretch where, for one inning where he is terrible. And it's usually the first inning he's pitching. Terrible. And then he comes out, settles down, looks dominant. And that was that second inning he threw, right? When you're spotting the changeup, throwing the fastball up in the zone. In this relief outing, he was throwing 98 up there sometimes, which is incredible. And it, uh, that that gives me at least a tiny bit of hope that we're seeing the type of pitcher he's trying to transform into. A relief pitcher who can go out and cu- do a couple innings at a time, throw hard, hard fastballs up in the zone, and that's it. Live a lot on his slider and his changeup, and then he can be a three-pitch, two-inning reliever. Hopefully that ends up who he who he ends up being, and hopefully this outing where he gave up no runs gives him some confidence, and he can feel a little more comfortable the next time he's up. Ryan Yarbrough was also moved to the 60-day IL with skull fractures. He we knew this already. He was already on the 15-day IL. We knew eventually he'd be moved to the 60 because you don't heal in two weeks from skull fractures or head fractures, however you want to describe it. So yeah, they they made that move as well. The Royals also traded minor league infielder Robbie Glendening. Uh, to the Baltimore Orioles for cash considerations. If you don't know who Glenn Denning is, he's an Australian player who uh, had some on-base ability, uh, not a ton of power, but uh, was pretty good at taking walks. He's been traded. The Royals also optioned and recalled Max Castillo all in one week. So they sent him down, then they brought him back up and he pitched today. They really just did it to eat some innings. Mike, we talked about this last week, so I, I didn't want to. I decided to cut an actual discussion of Max Castillo. But you had an interesting stat that is probably going to be one of the limitations of Max Castillo in his time here. Tell us your stat. Yeah, and if you want to look at the limits of Max Castillo, look at this: seventy-six pitches today. He recorded three swings and misses, three whiffs. That's not good enough to be a starting pitcher in Major League Baseball anymore. And so, unless you're just insane ground ball or something really weird. Uh, and so he he uh, he is limited by the stuff that he has. And we talked about it last week. Unless some of that improves, this is what he will always be. But there's value in it. There's some. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and in, in other injury news, Brad Keller went to the 15-day IL with right shoulder impingement. Apparently, it was impinging his ability to throw strikes. Uh, I don't even know if that's what the word impinging means. It just sounds like that to me, right? Like uh, the impingement was impeding his ability to throw strikes. Uh, Mike, what are your thoughts on Keller going to the IL? How do you feel about it? It seems like a tradition at this point that somebody the Royals need to trade is either going to be injured, ineffective, or both. And so at this point now with the injury, Brad Keller is both. And so, yeah, we, you and I were talking about him as one of the possible trade candidates for this year. The The return is going to be even lower considering if he doesn't come back and just really, really, really pitch well. Yeah, a 15-day IL stint really changes. the. It makes the timeline for getting anything even halfway decent for him real dicey. Right. Because let's say he comes back immediately after that two weeks, which probably isn't likely he'll go on a rehab assignment or something like that. But even if he came back immediately from that two from that two weeks off, he's got maybe 10 to 12 starts before the trade deadline hits. Is that enough for him to completely flip the switch, change the narrative on what he is and show everybody he is actually capable of throwing strikes? I don't think that it is. And so the odds of them getting anything that they were hoping for at the beginning of the season from him are pretty much gone. It's what, what does Rex always say? Uh, <laughs> slim to none and none just left town. I think that's how Rex puts it. Uh, but yeah, they're pretty, pretty slim at this point. And so uh, that, that hurts. It just, you know, it's another one of those things like the Royals needed a bunch of things to go right. And seemingly everything has gone wrong. And this is just another thing uh, that went wrong. Not only was Brad Keller not as effective as they needed him to be. Now he's hurt. 
And so they are, they're down to three starting pitchers in their rotation right now. Daniel Lynch should be coming back soon. So they'll have a fourth. What they're going to do for a fifth, I have no clue because they have no plan for it. Maybe wait for Keller to come back. And until then, just do bullpen games. I think that's most likely, but we'll see. On the field last week, the Royals went a disappointing two and four, which brings their overall record to 14 and 34. Uh, It was disappointing because it actually started off optimistic. The Royals took two of three from a talented Padres team. Uh, Heading into their series against Chicago, it looked like they might have a chance for their first winning week this week. Uh, but uh, that it did not work out that way. They were swept by the Chicago White Sox, struggling to score runs against Michael Kopech and Lucas Giolito. Mike, how do you feel about the Royals' week this week? Well, the, the thing that's really concerning me is, and I think we saw it the most in that White Sox series, teams are starting to understand that the Royals' approach at the plate isn't where it needs to be as a team. And so they are throwing a lot outside the zone they're, they're not challenging them in the zone because they know that there are certain hitters even if you've got guys like a uh, Michael Garcia or like a Vinny Pasquantino or uh, Nick Prado guys that will really take good at bats you can kind of work around them and then not throw strikes to the guys behind them and so I, I had to like go see if this theory I, that was just a thought I had I'm like is this actually happening to go look at numbers and make sure that was actually happening but the Royals um, are the see the second fewest strikes in Major League Baseball. Okay, now the team that sees the fewest strikes is Tampa Bay, but it's for a completely different reason. Teams don't throw them strikes because when you throw them strikes, they hit the shit out of it uh, with like an 850 OPS and, a, and an ISO over two. I mean, it's insane. Um, the Royals, on the other hand, the team, teams don't throw them strikes either, but for a completely different reason because they know if we don't throw them strikes, they'll still swing at them. And so uh, Kopech, in his start through only 37% strikes or 37% pitches inside the zone. And that's like lower than his average, much, much lower than an average his average. I was looking at his five, last five or six starts and it was the lowest one of the last six. Same thing with Giolito of his, he's faced the Royals twice. in like his last six starts, those are the two lowest percentages of strikes he's thrown in that time period. They just, they're being smart. Their plan is, why would I throw you strikes when I know you'll swing at balls? It's that simple. And so, uh, w- again, we, you and I have stretched approach, approach, swinging at pitches you can do damage on. Teams know that the Royals aren't going to do that, or they know that they're struggling to do that. And so you're going to see more and more teams throwing pitches outside the zone and just getting the Royals to swing at them. Yeah, that is especially becomes a problem when you're facing good pitchers, right? Good pitchers can can take advantage of you in that way. They can locate in that way. They can they can strategize and approach you as a hitter in that way. They can get ahead with the first one, and then they basically won't throw you another pitch in uh, in the strike zone if if, and, if they get up. And that is exactly that is exactly what Kopech did because he was seventy five percent first pitch strike, but overall he only threw thirty seven percent of his pitches in the zone. Yeah. It was first pitch strike, and then I'm not throwing it in the zone again. Yep, that's what they will do. And take Bobby Witt Jr. as the classic hitter of this uh, of of this of this ilk. You know, we're going to talk about him a little bit later too. But Bobby Witt Jr. if he gets down 0-1, you should never throw him another strike because odds are he'll swing. Whether it's a ball or strike, he's going to swing at the second one. Okay, that's going to happen. And so go ahead and throw it. He'll be down 0-2. Right. I don't know why at this point anybody throws Salvia strike, Bobby Witt Jr. a strike. You know, a lot of these Olivares. guys, I, I don't know, Olivares, Massey, I don't know why they ever get strikes at this point, because you could easily get them out just not throwing them, honestly. Uh, it was a tough week to find strong performers, honestly. I, I have to be honest about that. I looked and I was like, this is bad. Like, there were no strong performers this week. But Mike and I managed to scrap a couple in there. 
Mine's kind of a on the border one. <laughs> Mike, yeah. who's your strong performer for this week? I actually almost picked your, the one that you picked, but then I was like, yeah, that wasn't very good. Uh, I went with Carlos Hernandez because as if you've been listening to the show for a few years now, you know I'm a Carlos Hernandez guy. I've always said that a good team would get something out of Carlos Hernandez, and it looks like maybe he's starting to find his niche with the Royals. He went four innings pitched, I think, in two appearances this week, uh, two hits, seven strikeouts, and the big one for him, no walks. And so uh, his stuff looks really good. His fastball is playing 100-plus. Um, he threw – and people have always dogged his changeup. I've never understood why. I've always liked his changeup. And I know the numbers, probably because the numbers aren't very good on it. But um, I, I think his changeup could be good. It's looked good this week too. And so um, hopefully Carlos Hernandez has something that he can really hold on to and gain confidence with. Yeah, I went with Michael Garcia. He is the only hitter that was even close to 800 as an OPS this week. They had no hitters over 800 as an OPS in a week. That is really bad. But Michael Garcia did look a little bit better this week. He uh, went five for 17, had two doubles, two walks, and uh, or two walks and seven strikeouts. Um, I wondered if these were updated because two of the, he had two walks today, and honestly, he's just taking really good plate appearances too, and and that's sort of what I'm mostly concerned about. He played good defense as well, and so you're starting to see the results as a, as a. a come about as a result of that process that we've always said is good for him. And, and we want more. I wish I'd give every hitter in the lineup his, his process. If I could Sands, maybe Vinny Pasquantino and Nick Prado. Um, but yeah, great week for a, a bounce back week for Mikel Garcia a little bit. Hopefully he keeps that rolling because he's one of those uh, only, you know, he's one of maybe three or four guys in the lineup. We can say, Oh, that guy has consistently good plate appearances. So I'd like to see more and more of that. Mike, we mentioned it was a rough week to find strong performers. Uh, it was not a rough week to find weak performers. Who out there did you decide to pick uh, for strugglers? I picked old, the old Pasquatch. Vinny Pasquantino did not have a great week offensively. Um, three for 19, one home run in those three hits, two RBI, five strikeouts to no walks. That's not something you're going to see on a regular basis from Vinny Pasquantino is the no walks in a week when you strike out five times. He's traditionally been a guy who strikes out at about the same rate he does walking, sometimes even a little bit more on the walking side. But um, hopefully he gets that turned around because I think what we're kind of discovering is if Vinny and Sal aren't in there, driving in runs is going to be a real tough thing. And we want, and I wondered earlier in the year if this more aggressive approach was going to end up causing a little bit more up and down from Vinny, a little more streakiness. And I think we're seeing that he has been much more aggressive at the plate this week, this year than he was last year. And I actually don't think it's a great idea for him. I think he should return to his approach, which is more patient. He's swinging earlier and counts a lot more. And what we're learning about hitting is just, that's not a great idea. Like you should swing less, not more. And so you know, uh, hopefully he can find, you know, and it, he'll never be, it'll never hurt him that much because he has good plate or good uh, plate coverage and he's, you know, uh, real good bat to ball skills. But, you know, uh, hopefully he bounces back here soon because you're right. Without him driving in stuff in the middle, this offense looks not very good. Um, another guy who they kind of need to be on top of it because we kind of thought it would be him and Vinny Pascantino carrying the offense is Bobby Witt Jr. He was terrible this week. He went four for 23. Zero extra base hits, zero, two walks, seven strikeouts, stole one base and got caught stealing once. Bobby Witt Jr. is just not that guy right now. And Alex, I know, wanted to talk about this, but I don't think he's going to have time to today. But 
there are people saying he should be taken out of the leadoff spot. Take him out of the leadoff. Take him out of the leadoff. He doesn't belong there. I agree he does not belong there, and I agree he should not be hitting leadoff, but not because it will change his performance. If you move him into the seven hole, he's gonna. it's going to be the same thing from him, right? The, he should be moved out of the one because he's just not good enough as a hitter to be there right now, and he's wasted in the one spot because his speed, his base-stealing ability is diminished batting in the one when you have guys like Vinny Pasquantino and Salvador Perez hitting behind him right? You're going to ask him to steal less so that they can hit home runs and doubles and he can score from first, right? Like he doesn't need to steal bases if he's sitting in front of any Pasquantino and Salvador Perez. I think they should move him down in the lineup, but I still think it's not going to matter much until he learns to swing less. Michael, let's talk a little bit about themes. It was a tough week. Tell me what your theme for this week. My theme stagnation, mostly because I feel like if the team's going to lose games, I want to be able to see growth. I'm not seeing growth from a lot of guys. I'm not, I mean, yes, Michael Massey has looked a little bit better offensively, but Bobby Witt Jr. looks like the same hitter. Uh, MJ Melendez looks like the same hitter. You know, uh, you know, we're not seeing anything really impressive from any of the pitchers. Yes, Brady Singer's had a little bit better starts, but I haven't seen a whole bunch of market improvement from him. Uh, it really just feels like the Royals are kind of pasting it together every game and hoping to put something out there instead of really developing these guys at the major league level, I want to see tangible improvement from Bobby Witt Jr. and MJ Melendez, especially. But, you know, I, I'd like to see tangible improvement from um, Brady Singer. I'd like to see him throwing a changeup more. I'd like to see uh, guys coming out that are going to be here long term and showing me progress. And I haven't seen it. So that hurts when you're not winning and you're not seeing that. It really is like real kick to the pills. Yeah, I think we can see that they have a different, the, this new coaching staff has a different philosophy. It's just that the players haven't gotten it yet. Now it is still very early in terms of like how, how you can't expect them to progress even in half a season. You do have to give that some time in terms of that progression, but boy, I would like to see some of it turn around a little bit more. Um, and that sort of goes along with my theme. My theme is just growing pains hurt, right? Like I don't like, uh, it feels bad when I have to watch MJ Melendez chase every high fastball. It feels bad when I got to watch Bobby Wood Jr. swing at the first pitch every time, pop it up and get an out. You know, these things feel bad. Uh, I don't like it. It hurts. These growing pains hurt. It's a young team. They'll have some high highs, but man, the low lows are pretty freaking low. Royals Weekly is brought to you by All In Physical Therapy. For one-on-one -on -one personalized physical therapy, we choose All In Physical Therapy. They took excellent care of our mother after surgery left her with pain and limited mobility in her arm. She loves to work out, be active. Steroids were invented so the Russians could keep up with her in the power clean. That is a fact. The excellent specialized care she got at All In Physical Therapy had her back to being active in no time. Rocky IV is basically just a documentary of her life in 1984. You can ask Stallone mm -hmm. on that. Yeah, he ran through the snow, did the whole log thing. That was all her. Uh, in in per all in physical therapy knows how to help athletes recover. It's owned and operated by Lisa Matzone, Tommy Freevert, a former Arena League football player, Northwest Missouri State Bearcat, and a hell of a guy. They have offices in both Blue Springs and Lee Summit, so get over there to work with Tommy. Tell your doctor you want to do your physical therapy with the best of the best at all in physical therapy. To learn more, give them a call at 816-427-5300. That's 816-427-5300. Or visit their website at allin-pt.com. That's A-L-L-I-N-PT.com. Alex, can you hear me? Sure can. Can you hear me near you? Can you hear me? <laughs> I can. Uh, let me give you the intro here. 
On this week's Spotlight segment, we are very happy to be joined by our dear friend Alex Duvall, the editor-in-chief of Royals Farm Report, to discuss the upcoming MLB draft. You can check out all of Alex's work by following him on Twitter, at Royals Farm. He is a must-follow if you want tons of insight and analysis about Royals prospects, the draft, and a whole bunch of other stuff. Sometimes he just makes random lists of things and then at me and tells people to yell at me for them. Oh my gosh, um, I never sent the one out for today. <laughs> <laughs> it'll be stuff like best sports movie and then he'll put one that no one is expecting near the top and then they yell at me for it he says if you have complaints talk to at royals weekly and then i i get those long threads of people arguing about random it was the best the, states it was in the, the disney movies that were just way terrible terrible picks alex <laughs> terrible and hey, you, wasn't even on the list you gotta right? you gotta take that up with your brother i don't have anything to do with that <laughs> <laughs> Of course. Uh, so I look forward to that every week. Alex, thank you for joining us. We, we're really going to get a ta- uh, conversation about the draft. I know you got to hustle because uh, you have some uh, some family obligations. But I want to start with a little context. The Royals will have the eighth overall pick, but more importantly, they'll have four picks in the first 75. Alex, can you start by giving us a broad view of this draft class as a whole? What areas are strong? What aren't? What, what people are? What are people saying about this draft class? Yeah, so the college hitting at the very top is deep and and kind of like last year where a guy like Drew Gilbert falls to the Astros at 28. You've got a situation where I think you could end up with some steals late in the draft like that. Um, and you know it's 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 different than like the NFL draft where you know you you look for that deep class and it's like all right because we could get some you know talent in the second rounds and the way the the bidding process is you know, manipulated the MLB draft, having a deep class for a team like the Royals, the eighth overall pick, it doesn't necessarily behoove them in a way the NFL draft might, but um, you also have a very deep college arm class. And I think the two combined, like you said, for the top 75 picks, I think between those two, if the Royals go college arm and bat with their first four picks, they could really reinforce the lower minors you know, alongside a class that Javier Vaz is playing really well, playing really well, Jack Pineda playing really well, Gavin Cross and Caden Wallace are holding their own. I mean, you know, their college class from last year, David Sandlin playing really well. So I think you could add four more guys like that in the top 75 that would really bolster the lower realms of the class because the high school pitching class is off and the high school hitting class is top heavy. But this is a great draft class to be an organization that wants to invest in college players. Yeah, I like to hear that because the college guys, I know the guys Mike likes a lot. I know they're the guys you get more data on and, and, and the Royals are trying to utilize that data better. Um, how do you think the Royals should be approaching this draft then? What, what should they be thinking about in terms of where to look early, where to look late and that sort of thing? Hashtag draft more hitters, baby. The, uh, <laughs> the, the college hitting class is so strong at the top. I mean, they're, they're going to have their pick of the college hitter that they want. Um, and it's not going to, and, and that player will likely still be better than whoever the best college pitcher available is. Um, you know, if there is a really strong run of college hitters at the very top, all that means is that there's going to be a college pitcher that falls that probably shouldn't have. So either way, as long as the Royals go college, I think they're going to be safe. I think there's just a really good group of prospects at the top. Um, specifically in the college hitters. Like, if you if you were to tell me right now that none of the following in 
Dylan Cruz, Kyle Teal, Jacob Gonzalez, Wyatt Langford, and there's one more I was just thinking about. Um, and, and there's a fifth one that I, for whatever reason, off the top of my head, I can't remember his name. Oh, like a Braden Taylor from TCU, uh, Matt Shaw from Maryland. You're telling me one of these guys isn't available at number eight? Okay, fine. Then Paul Skeens is, and I will happily take the best college arm in the class at number eight. So there's just there's just a really good crop of guys at the top that they should be able to get a college hitter and plug them right in behind Gavin Cross, Caden Wallace. I'll go a little bit different from you. I agree. At the top of the draft, I'm I'm really looking for college bats, especially. Um, you know, there are some good college arms in there as well. But I'm I'm thinking for like the whole draft, I want especially in those middle rounds from maybe even like four to 10, maybe even a little after 10 as the Royals did a really good job last year. And and I think it was the 11th. Um, I can't remember who they got now, but I remember really liking that pick. That's when they got, that's where they got Sandlin. Mm -hmm. That's okay. That was what it was. Um, But I want pitchers that can locate. I want to see a a nice change in in kind of philosophy, find some guys that can, that uh, can establish themselves by saying, Hey, we can already throw strikes and then come on in and let the Royals, uh, improve your stuff or maybe give you a new pitch or uh, change your profile a little bit, whatever that is. But I'd like to see the bolstering of some of the pitching depth in the lower minors. Cause I just don't know that it, it's there necessarily. So, well, it's funny you say that because they, they take a guy like David Sandlin in the 11th, right. And David Sandlin's mm-hmm. big issue at Oklahoma was control. You know, the question was that he couldn't s- throw strikes. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And so all of a sudden David Sandlin can throw strikes on a consistent basis. And, and Mike, I totally I, like, in principle, I agree with what you're saying, but if the Royals have shown us anything in the last draft class, it's the ability to take a guy who, you know, can't throw strikes in college, but has premier stuff and take him and, and in one year, really teach him how to pitch. And, and maybe that's not a Royals thing. Maybe Oklahoma was just really bad at, you know, teaching guys how to throw strikes, but whatever it is, it seems like you know, that was the, the, the mark. Now, I would also argue that Mason Barnett and Steven Zoback are kind of the, the opposite trends of that, and they were taking the third and fourth round. So they've done a little bit of both. But I do think that, you know, their their new philosophy of throw it down the middle, you know, is it kind of plays well to college guys with premier stuff who maybe they have a harder time throwing strikes. John McMillan, another good example. Yeah, I'm looking for a projectable pitching class from the Royals. Like one of the things that I think we've seen this year is somebody like Frank Mazzucato take a step forward because now you're seeing him develop into the thing that he, and I still think there's more room for projection there. But you also look at a guy like Steven Zoback, another guy who I think had a little projection left in him coming into Major League Baseball. Looks like he's throwing harder as as a three-inning reliever. I don't think he'll stay starting because his first couple starts have been pretty not great, but uh you know, I want to see them target some guys they can get into this pitching development system and they can let grow here. Guys who have the ability to spin like a Frank Mazzucato, but maybe don't have that 95 mile an hour fastball yet, but could in a couple of years. I think I think those going after those guys, especially later in the draft, I'm not talking early, but like later in the draft, that might be something that they could try and target because they'd have seemingly turned around this pitching development. So lean into it if it's working. You know what I'm saying? Uh, everybody wants to hear about the first pick, obviously, right? We're still far enough away that the first pick hasn't been discussed enough. With that eighth overall pick, uh, Alex, who are some prospects you think the Royals should target? So it's funny. I was talking to to Jared Perkins this morning on our Sunday spaces, and I really think that the catcher out of Virginia, Kyle Teal, like 
I don't, I, I don't know why more folks weren't as high on him before the draft process really began at the end of last summer. Um, I haven't been diving into it nearly as much, so I'm, I'm one to talk. But, you know, the more I watch him, I'm like, what, what were people missing in this kid, you know, before he had a monster season at, as a junior now at Virginia? Kyle Teal, I think, is the guy that could allow you to move Carter Jensen to left field, first base, DH, to move MJ Melendez to the outfield permanently. I know Salvador Perez has a few years left, and Luca Tresh is in Double A. And you know, is is Luca Tresh the heir apparent? I don't know. Freddie Fermin's having a good year. I think Luca Tresh could be a lot like a Freddie Fermin. But I think if you're looking for the next catcher of the Kansas City Royals, and Kyle Teal is there at pick number eight, he's a guy you draft him, and now we can just pencil him in for the 2027 season or whatever. Kyle Teal's going to be the guy, and everybody else, go play somewhere else because we don't need you to be the backstop. We need you to go hit. MJ Melendez, you need to figure it out at the plate. Go play the outfield. Carter Jensen, as promising as some of the things he does on offense are, go figure out how to hit. We don't need you to catch anymore. Quit worrying about it. Kyle Teal's going to be the catcher, and I think he's that premier backstop prospect that, you know, is he is he Henry Davis? Is he Buster Posey? No but he is like the next tier of catching prospects like a Shea Langoliers, like a Sean Murphy was before Sean Murphy became maybe the best catcher in baseball. Yeah, him and Adley Rushman are probably yeah. like squaring off to see who among them is. Yeah. And so, yeah, he's probably not Adley Rushman, right. As a prospect, but you know, that's that if you're a tier below that, that's still really, really good. And so 100%. Uh, Kyle Teal, if he's available, we'll see that premium position. The fact that he plays that premium position is going to get looked at really closely by the teams one through seven. So we'll see on that one. Although I think I know who's going number one. Um, Mike, who, who do you like? Who are some guys you think they might? Well, uh, after reading uh, the Royals farm report, sort of draft preview of 10 guys that they thought the Royals could take at number eight, I, I kind of had to dive more into Jacob Gonzalez, the shortstop from Ole Miss. He's a guy that I like a uh, real funky stance and swing. The only, the only guy I could kind of compare the swing to oddly is MJ Melendez because he's, he's left-handed and he's got this kind of swing that takes him out of the batter's box as he's swinging at the end of his swing, um, which you would think, okay, let me throw him fastballs down and away, but he stands insanely close to the plate. This kid is right on top of it. He's got good power. I don't, a lot of people don't think maybe he stays at, at short, long-term because he isn't the fastest guy in the world. Um, but I do like the, I do like the power. I do like the, uh, the, the barrel ability and I do like the approach. And so I, I don't know that he stays at shortstop, especially if you continue with Bobby Witt jr. And you think he's really good, but Gonzalez would make a great third baseman because he does have somewhat quick feet. He just doesn't have the range. I don't think. And so, uh, I would question that there. So Jacob Gonzalez is the guy that I would really like. Um, I do like one high school. I do like, a Max, uh, Clark is that his last name mm-hmm. Max Clark he, he's good I don't know if he's going to make it to eight the guy that really intrigues me out of high school though Bryce Eldridge two-way guy um, looks you know power guy from the left-hand side could play outfield if you needed to first base also throws in the high 90s off the mound he just intrigues me I don't know if I if he's right for the Royals at eight but he's definitely intriguing to me as a prospect yeah I 
high school guys, I've sort of, you know, uh, I'm, I'm weary. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with two college guys, and you brought up one of them already, Alex. That's Braden Taylor from TCU. He's a third-base prospect as well, a guy who just does a lot of things are, uh, in the batter's box right. You know, a guy with good approach, a guy with a good hit tool, a guy with enough power. I, he is young for a, for a college prospect. He's still only 20 years old, and so there's still a lot of projection in him. And for that reason alone, I feel there's a lot of value for him at eight. You get him into that Royals hitting development and you let them turn on some power. You let them, you know, make sure his approach is really is really right. And you just let him just hit the crap out of the baseball uh, guy who's having a lot of success in the Big 12 at TCU. I'd love to see him uh, if he's available at eight. I know that might be a little high for some people. Some pipe people may not be that high on him, but I'm the type of guy who's really willing to see value in somebody who's a little bit younger as a prospect. The fact that he's doing what he's doing at such a high level uh, is really impressive in my mind. And so, yeah, Braden Taylor, uh, big fan of his. I put this other guy on, on on here just because I knew it would annoy Alex and because I thought people would want to talk about it. And that's Enrique Bradfield Jr. That doesn't annoy me. <laughs> Alex, that much. do you want him at eight? I thought that would annoy you. Uh, this guy is a, just. Anno- I know you've been pegging him a as a bit. <laughs> <laughs> Because he's a he's a freaking classic Royals player out of college as well. I know, I know that Alex has probably been pegging him as a Royal for years now. Um, Enrique Bradfield Jr., if you don't know, is plays at Vanderbilt. He is exceptionally fast center fielder, eighty grade runner. Some say um, just a ton of uh, stolen base ability. Great fielder in the outfield. Not a super strong arm, but he makes up for it with the fact that he is so fast to every ball. Um, he's going to cover a ton of range. You could. I mean, I'm not going to say you could put him in the outfield right now in the major leagues and he'd compete for a gold glove, but he might, honestly. Oh, I will. Just because this, just be, just because, I mean, just like Gerard Dyson, the speed will be something like everybody else in the in MLB doesn't have. And mm-hmm. so he, bad routes doesn't matter. He's in, he's got the speed to make up for it. And so, uh, he does have good bat to ball skills, some pretty good ones. He is, he does have a pretty good approach at the plate. The power for him will never probably be above 30, 40 grade ever. Like, and that will be the constant concern. Does he hit the ball hard enough to get hits and to hit that? That'll always be the question for him. I don't know. I think, I think he's a decent sort of high C or low, low floor guy. Or wait, what am I saying? High floor guy, uh, a guy who you could probably say, Hey, if he hits 270 and gets on at 330 clip for us, he'll be worth four or war because he plays such great defense, you know? And so they might go that approach. It would. I wouldn't hate it. Would I love it? No, but I wouldn't hate it. His absolute floor is Kyle Isbell. Like there is, there's not a world in my mind where that dude is any worse than Kyle Isbell. And I think people overlook a lot of times prospects like this. I mentioned it when Nick Lofton was really hitting well in Double A. That you know he wasn't getting top 100 consideration because of, of a lack of ceiling. But there's not a prospect in minor league baseball with a safer floor than a profile like Nick Lofton's. And it's like that guy is a two-and-a-half win player. No matter where you plug him in, no matter what he's doing on the field, he's going to be a, a net positive in the big leagues. And there aren't a lot of guys like that. I think Enrique Bradfield Jr. would compete for the gold glove this year. And if you told me that he was something as a 22-year-old right out of college, he could produce somewhere in the range of Kyle Isbell and Michael A. Taylor. I wouldn't call you crazy. I don't think that's an insane thing to suggest. So if you get him into a hitting development department that can work with him on driving the ball just a hair better, 
the guy has some raw pop. He reminds me a little bit of Gerard Dyson where, yeah, is hitting for power his game? No. But Gerard Dyson hit a couple home runs. You were like, what on earth? How did he – like, where did it come from, right? I mean, he had the physical strength to do it. It just wasn't his game. I think there's some of that in Enrique Bradfield. And am I, am I you know, his biggest fan? No. I do think the lack of power concerns limit him to something like Stephen Kwan offensively. But if you're Stephen Kwan on offense and Kyle Isbell on defense, that's a three-win player. And I, and I, the, the more that I think about it, the more I can talk myself into the idea of, you know, I, I, do you want to pay him $5 million? No, and I get that. But there's not a safer bet to be a big league center fielder in the draft outside of Dylan Cruz. And that's valuable. Yeah. What about um, like a ceiling of Coco Crisp for him? I know when he was younger, he, he played some center. I didn't know if. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's, I mean, there's, could he there's ever get to, to that, that kind of offensive pl- profile? I think so. And I, and, I don't know if you're, that's the thing. Yeah, I don't like, know if you're ever going to get that much out of him. I don't know. But I really liked the Kenny Lofton comps that I was hearing because yeah. the way he can hit the ball offensively could be similar, right? He can bunt for a hit, unlike Gerard Dyson, who was never very good at that. Like mm-hmm. he can bunt, has a better bunting ability. You know, obviously with the new rules, stealing bases is easier and it becomes a whole different thing for him. Like you're talking about a guy who, if he can get on base enough, could swipe 60 bags in a year like that. Right. Yes. And so I, I think, you know, I think it makes a little bit of sense if you think he can, if you think he can, you know, get into that hitting development system and use every ounce of his ability to get on base as much as humanly possible. That's all you'll ask for from him. Get on base as much as humanly possible and then do your damage. You know, um, I think that's his game. I want to get you out of here as soon as possible, Alex, because I know we're taking you too long. One more question. We're done. Are there any prospects in this class who maybe shouldn't be in the talks for that top 10? but you might like for the Royals later on as a target, some, some diamond in the rough kind of prospect. Yeah. So uh, the way I look at this draft class is if if you're going to try to, you know, really play well at the lower levels and not just take best available, kind of like they did with Caden Wallace. I mean, sometimes that works out. Um, But there's a, there's a high school guy. I think it's funny because Marcus, I think you had him on your don't do not draft list. Um, But Aiden Miller is like the Nolan Gorman of this draft class. Like I really think <laughs> that that ain't, that, ain't, that ain't my pick. I put him on the on the outline as like this is my guy for this segment for this question. Okay, so you, I don't you know what do not the, draft list up you're talking about. Okay, I thought I thought you had a list. That he would like actually be on my do not draft, draft list, but okay, uh, okay, Mike that's Mike's do not draft list. Yeah, sorry, he the, would be on my do not draft. The the St. Louis Cardinals have drafted two top ten prospects in all of baseball recently and Jordan Walker and Nolan Gorman guys with big power that fell in the draft for no reason. And now it was like, Oh yeah, that guy should have definitely been a top five pick. And I think that's Aiden Miller. I really think, you know, I don't want to project him out to be this top prospect in baseball at some point, but if you're talking about a Nolan Gorman, Jordan Walker type where there's a massive amount of power that people are sleeping on, it's in Aiden Miller. And if you can somehow sink him to your second pick, which is 43, I think, and and pay him a little bit of extra money to be available at 43, holy smokes, that would be the steal of the draft class. Now, I don't think there's any way he gets that far and signs. I think he either goes early or goes to college. But Aiden Miller is a guy that I am just chomping at the bit at. And I don't think he's a guy that you can under slot like at number eight because I think he, as a, you know, as a, 
powerful prep hitter. That dude will just go to college if he don't get what he wants. So I don't think that's in play at eight. But my goodness gracious, he can hit the ever-loving crap out of the baseball. And if for some reason the Royals can get him at 43, I would be ecstatic. Yeah, um, I, he he's one that would be on my don't uh, draft list. But it's specifically because when I see his swing, he drops his hands a little bit when he swings. And, and it just concerns me a little bit when timing and the pitching gets a little bit more challenging, but who knows, you know, he may, that may be perfect for him. He may just have a little bit different swing and he may end up being, you know, who, you know, the next Nolan Arenado at third or whatever, you know, he could be a, a phenomenal player. Um, I went with a guy named Nolan Chanul. Uh, he interests me a little bit out of FAU, Florida Atlantic, um, big mm-hmm. guy, Plays first base, but, uh, you know, uh, could have the athleticism to go to a corner outfield position. A um, lot of power, good approach. He struggled, I think, at the Cape Cod League, which is what I've, I'm reading a little bit, and that may drop him a little bit. Um, but I think if he's there and that's with that second-round pick, I think he'd be a, a kind of less expensive way to be able to draft some potential power, which I've always kind of said is something that the Royals have to draft and develop. They're never going to be able to pay for on the open market. And so, yeah, he's a guy that I would take a look at. Also, the kid at the third baseman out of Virginia, um, Jelloff, I think is his last name. Um, yeah. Jake Jelloff. Jelloff. Uh, he he, uh, he looks, you know, that's not maybe another guy to take a swing on. He's got uh, a little bit of swing and miss issues because he swings out of his shoes a lot. But if you can refine the approach, he, he does have a lot of raw power uh, on the corner there. So those are a couple guys that I might look at later if they're still there. Write those names down, everyone, because they will be drafted by the Kansas City Royals in July. In July. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, Alex. We really appreciate it. Sorry we took up so much of your time. We love having you on. Go ahead out. Go out there right now. Go to Twitter. Follow at Royals Farm. Alex is doing little Sunday chats on there that are like great insight into the minor leagues and drafting and all that sort of stuff. So make sure you're listening to those. Check out his content wherever it is. Thank you so so much, Alex. We really appreciate it. Gentlemen, love you both. Thanks for having me. We'll talk to you again soon. Have a good one. Awesome. The Royals have a six-game homestand this week with a chance to win a few games against Detroit and then the lowly Washington Nationals. Thought that against the White Sox, though, too, and they got swept, so <laughs> we'll see. Uh, going out, I'm going out to one of those Tigers games, taking mom for Mother's Day as her Mother's Day gift. Uh, Mike, tell us about the Detroit Tigers. We don't have much out for probables for them, but give us a little heads up. Well, let's just throw out just a... a uh, tip of the cap to a legend here goes and gets his mother a Mother's Day gift that's really for him. So <laughs> no, she loves going to games. Um, the Tigers are twenty and twenty four, which is actually good enough for second place in the AL Central, baby. Uh, they are an aging, weird kind of team. I say aging; they've got like two guys that are super old, and the rest of the team is really young. Um, so that first game will have Singer against uh, is that Michael Lorenzen. Uh, 31-year-old right-handed pitcher out of Cal State Fullerton. He's having a good year, 3.44 ERA and a 1.21 whip. Fastball in the mid-90s, a changeup, a slider, a sinker, a sweeper. Um, he hasn't thrown any of his pitches more than 33% of the time, so he mixes it up a bunch. But the fastball and changeup combo tend to be what he dominates with. Uh, that second game, we don't have probables for either side. Royals don't know who they're throwing. Tigers don't know who they're throwing. So nothing to really preview there. Uh, hopefully we can get a win against whoever they put out there in that third game. We'll throw, it looks like we'll throw Granky. That's his turn in the rotation, but the Tigers don't have a probable yet. The Tigers overall are outplaying their Pythagorean win loss significantly. Uh, big time prospect Riley green from a, cu- a couple years ago is hitting. Okay. At 113 OPS plus 
Eduardo uh, Rodriguez and Michael Lorenzen are pitching well, but that's really about it. Uh, Miguel Cabrera, not, not doing good. They're now debating on, can we let him continue this whole retirement tour thing, hitting 150 or whatever he's hitting. Uh, and so we'll see the Nationals after that. Yeah, the Nationals also not coming in. Uh, they're last in the NL East. They're not doing great. Uh, 20 and 27 on the year. Not a team that's really looking to compete at all. Uh, similar to Detroit, they have a couple guys hitting and a couple guys pitching, and that's it. Other than that, just a, a not not strong lineup or rotation. Lane Thomas is having a nice season at a 125 OPS plus, and uh, old uh, Tiger Jamer Candelario is doing okay as well. Uh, but other than that, not great offensively. They got a couple of starters pitching well with Josiah Gray and Mackenzie Gore, but everyone else is either average or far below it. Um, so we should hopefully get a chance to win some games in those two series. We'll see. It's not a guarantee. We've now been swept by the Oakland A's and the Chicago White Sox this season. Just to let you all know. (laughs) That's going to be a trivia question at the end of the year, people. (laughs) So (laughs) get ready for that one. We'll end this week's episode like we end every episode with our Just A Bit Outside segment, where we talk about something that's interesting to us outside the world of baseball. Michael, you don't like it when I call you by your full name on here because you think somebody's going to steal your worthless identity. Tell us what you've been thinking about this week leading up to Sunday. Do you know how infrequently people call me Michael? <laughs> Never Michael. Um, I, do I have a story for you? Okay. What if I told you you could hear a fascinating story about a woman who's a spy and only has one leg? Okay. <laughs> I know, right? Yes. It's just like everybody wants to hear yes. that story, right? Uh, so I, I started reading a book like a week and a half ago called uh, A Woman of No Importance. And it's the story of, it's a true story. It's a, it's a history book um, about a woman named Virginia Hall, who's from Baltimore. But she was kind of like, a, a, you know, born into wealth and privilege in Baltimore and wanted to go out into the world and kind of travel and work for the State Department and all these different things. And then she's like working in Europe and she ends up having basically a hunting accident because she was a big time hunter as well. Um, You know, kind of like old school hunting, like, you know, where it's all fancy and you dress up and she because she actually actually shoots herself in the leg uh, climbing a fence and uh, she loses her leg. But during World War Two, she becomes a very important spy for the United States, uh, helping in the French resistance movement to the Nazis. And so it's, it's just a really good book. Um, about a very interesting character, you know, and so that's uh, that's what I've been reading. It's uh, I, I recommend. So it's called A Woman of No Importance, and uh, it's good stuff. That does sound like a really dope book that I would totally read. I went to a bookstore today. Did you know that the that uh, Thomas uh, Ricks wrote a sequel to Fiasco? I did not know Gamble. that. Ooh, I found it today at this bookstore and I bought it. Nice. It's about the Iraq War after David Petraeus took over as a. Uh, as a leading general of that, of that war. It was, so I'm, I can't, I'm excited to read it, but that sounds like a very good one. I'd probably like to get it on audiobook and listen to it. That's how um, I'm, that's how I'm reading it. I'm listening. Right. To it. When Mike says reading, he hasn't actually read anything reading since is 2018. And so he just listens. To, that's usually when he watches movies, he calls that reading too. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, I'm talking about this saying, cause it actually it was sparked in my mind by a book that I'm also listening to. Um, but the saying that I really like, and is seemingly more and more true every day is the saying behind every great fortune is a great crime. If you haven't heard this saying, it's a, it's a relatively old saying. Um, but it, the more I think about it, the more it just sounds so true. Right. And I thought about it recently because I'm listening to this book called blowout. That's about 
basically oil and gas industry and sort of how countries, how it breeds corruption, but how also, also how when it's employed in autocratic states, those, those countries become just very one dependent on it. And as a result of that dependency, their pop, their populace, their citizenry suffers massively as the, the autocrats hoard that that wealth for themselves. Um, um, and that's the case, right? Like behind every great fortune is a great crime. Start thinking about the people who are most wealthy in this country and you will, you will find human atrocity lying just behind the things that they do. So look at Apple and the fact that they have to install nets uh, at their assembly plants in China because people are jumping out of windows to commit suicide, right? Like look at, uh, you know, look at Bill Gates and Microsoft and the theft of intellectual property that he did early on to start and launch Microsoft. Look at Amazon and the way that they suppress workers and all these sorts of things. Like it is all like it is look at the Kennedys, right? Who started out as bootleggers, like (laughs) behind every great fortune is a great crime. And what that should tell us is that like, rather than revering all of these exceptionally wealthy people, maybe we should be asking some more questions about how they got their wealth and who had to suffer as a result of it and, and all those sorts of things. But anyway, I do want us to think about the ways in which money at the very least can often corrupt. And uh, at the very least, uh, those who accumulate great, 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 way too much amounts of it, probably did something awful to do so. I bought a Powerball ticket today. <laughs> <laughs> I knew you would go. With something. Okay. The one I exception did. will be when Mike wins this Powerball. Uh, and then yeah. he can, you know, Royals Weekly's going huge I mean, then, baby. I had to kill a hobo to afford it. but uh, oh, Okay. Behind every great fortune is a great crime. There um, we go. Anyway. Baby. Anyway. Uh, thank you for joining us this week on Royals Weekly. We'll be back next week to talk more Royals baseball. Until then, be good to each other. And go Royals. <laughs>